Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of Moonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Moonfleet by Jamie Faulkner. Chapter Sixteen, Part Two. This brought the diamond buyer to his feet in a moment. "You fool! You cussed fool!" he shrieked. "Are you come here to beard me?" "'And when I say the thing is worth ten silver crowns, do you fling it to the winds?' I had sprung forward with a half-thought of catching Elzevir's arm, but it was too late. The stone flew up in the air, caught the low rays of the setting sun for a moment, and then fell among the flowers. I could not see it as it fell, yet followed with my eyes the line in which it should have fallen, and thought I saw a glimmer where it touched the earth. It was only a flash or sparkle for an instant— just at the stem of that same rushy red-flowered plant, and then nothing more to be seen. But as I faced round, I saw the little man's eyes turned that way too, and perhaps he saw the flash as well as I. "'There's for your ten crowns,' said Elzevir. "'Let us be going, lad.' And he took me by the arm, and marched me out of the room and down the stairs. "'Go, and a blight on you!' says Mr. Alderbrand, his voice being not so high as when he cried out last, but in his usual squeak. And then he repeated— a blight on you, just for a parting shot as we went through the door. We passed two more waiting men on the stairs, but they said nothing to us, and so we came to the street. We walked along together for some time without a word, and then Elzevir said, Cheer up, lad, cheer up. Thou saidst thyself, thou fearest there was a curse on the thing. So now it is gone, maybe you will well quit of it. Yet I could not say anything, being too much disappointed to find the diamond was a sham, and bitterly cast down at the loss of all our hopes. It was all very well to think there was a curse upon the stone, so long as we had it, and to feign that we were ready to part with it. But now it was gone, I knew that at heart I never wished to part with it at all, and would have risked any curse to have it back again. And there was supper waiting for us when we got back, but I had no stomach for victuals and sat moodily while Elzevir ate, and he not much. But when I sat and brooded over what had happened, a new thought came to my mind, and I jumped up and cried, "'Elzevir, we are fools! The stone is no sham! Tis a real diamond!' He put down his knife and fork, and looked at me, not saying anything, but waiting for me to say more, and yet did not show so much surprise as I expected. Then I reminded him how the old merchant's face was full of wonder and delight when first he saw the stone, which showed he thought it was real then, and how afterwards, though he schooled his voice to bring out long words to deceive us, he was ready enough to spring to his feet and shriek out loud when Elzevir threw the stone into the garden. I spoke fast, and in talking to him convinced myself, so when I stopped for want of breath I was quite sure that the stone was indeed a diamond, and that Alderbrand had duped us. Still Elzevir showed little eagerness, and only said, "'Tis like enough that when you say is true, but what would you have us do? The stone is flung away.' "'Yes,' I answered, "'but I saw where it fell, and know the very place. Let us go back now at once and get it.' "'Do you not think that Alderbrand saw the place too?' asked Elzevir. And then I remembered how, when I turned back to the room after seeing the stone fall, I caught the eyes of the old merchant looking the same way— and how he spoke more quietly after that, and not with the bitter cry he used when Elzevir tossed the jewel out of the window. "'I do not know,' I said doubtfully. 
Let us go back and see. It fell just by the stem of a red flower that I marked well. What? I added, seeing him still hesitate and draw back. Do you doubt? Shall we not go and get it? Still he did not answer for a minute, and then spoke slowly, as if weighing his words. I cannot tell. I think that all you say is true, and that this stone is real. Nay, I was half of that mind when I threw it away, and yet I would not say we are not best without it. "'Twas you who first spoke of a curse upon the jewel, and I laughed at that as being a childish tale. But now I cannot tell. For ever since we first scented this treasure, luck has run against us, John. Yes, run against us very strong. And here we are, flying from home, called outlaws, and with blood upon our hands. Not that blood frightens me, for I have stood to face to face with men in fair fight, and never felt a death-blow given so away on my soul. But these two men came to a tricksy kind of end, and yet I could not help it. It is true that all my life I have served the contraband, but no man ever knew me to do a foul action, and now I do not like that men should call me felon, and like it less that they should curse thee and call thee felon too. Perhaps there may be after all some curse that hangs about this stone, and leads to ruin those that handle it. I cannot say, for I am not a parson Glenny in these things, but Blackbeard, in an evil mood, may have tied the treasure up to be a curse to any that use it for themselves. What do we want with this thing at all? I've got money to be touched at need. We may lay quiet this side of the channel, where thou shalt learn an honest trade. And when the mischief has blown over, we will go back to Moonfleet. So let the jewel be, John. Shall we not let the jewel be? He spoke earnestly, and most earnestly, at the end, taking me by the hand and looking me full in the face. But I could not look him back again and turn my eyes away, for I was wilful and would not bring myself to let the diamond go. Yet all the while I thought that what he said was true, and I remembered that sermon that Mr. Lenny preached, saying that life was like a why, and that to each comes a time when two ways part, and where he must choose whether he will take the broad and sloping road or the steep and narrow path. So now I guessed that long ago I had chosen the broad road, and now I was but walking farther down it in seeking after this evil treasure, and still I could not bear to give all up, and persuaded myself that it was a child's folly to madly fling away so fine a stone. So instead of listening to good advice from one so much older than me, I set to work to talk him over, and persuaded him that if we got the diamond again, and ever could sell it, we would give the money to build up the Mahune almshouses, knowing well in my heart that I never meant to do any such thing. Thus, at the last, Elzevir, who was the stubbornest of men and never yielded, was overborne by his great love to me, and yielded here. It was ten o'clock before we set out together to go again to Alderbrand's, meaning to climb the garden wall and get the stone. I walked quickly enough, and talked all the time to silence my own misgivings, but Elzevir hung back a little and said nothing, for it was sorely against his judgment that he came at all. But as we neared the place I ceased my chatter, and so we went on in silence, each busy with his own thoughts. We did not come in front of Alderbrand's house, but turned out of the main street down a side lane which we guessed would skirt the garden wall. There were few people moving even in the streets 
and in this little lane there was not a soul to meet as we crept along in the shadow of the high walls. We were not mistaken, for soon we came to what we judged was the outside of Alderman's garden. Here we paused for a minute, and I believe Elzevir was for making a last remonstrance, but I gave him no chance, for I had found a place where some bricks were loosened in the wall-face, and set myself to climb. It was easy enough to scale for us, and in a minute we both dropped down in a bed of soft mould on the other side. We pushed through some gooseberry bushes that caught the clothes, and distinguishing the outline of the house, made that way, till in a few steps we stood on the pelouse, or turf, which I had seen from the balcony three hours before. I knew the twirl of the walks and the pattern of the beds, the rank of hollyhocks that stood up all along the wall, and the poppies breathing out a faint sickly odour in the night. An utter silence held all the garden, and, the night being very clear, there was still enough light to show the colours of the flowers when one looked close at them, though the green of the leaves was turned to grey. We kept in the shadow of the wall, and looked expectantly at the house. But no murmur came from it. It might have been a house of the dead for any noise the living made there. Nor was there light in any window, except in one behind the balcony, to which our eyes were turned first. In that room there was someone not yet gone to rest, for we could see a lattice of light where a lamp shone through the open work of the wooden blinds. "'He is up still,' I whispered, "'and the outside shutters are not closed.' Elzevir nodded and then I made straight for the bed where the red flower grew. I had no need of any light to see the bells of that great rushy thing, for it was different from any of the rest, and besides that was planted by itself. I pointed it out to Elzevir. "'The stone lies by the stalk of that flower,' I said, "'on the side nearest to the house.' And then I stayed him with my hand upon his arm, that he should stand where he was at the bed's edge, while I stepped on and got the stone. My feet sank in the soft earth as I passed through the fringe of poppies circling the outside of the bed, and so I stood beside the tall rushy flower. The scarlet of its bells was almost black, but there was no mistaking it, and I stooped to pick the diamond up. Was it possible? Was there nothing for my outstretched hand to finger, except the soft rich loam, and on the darkness of the ground no guiding sparkle? I knelt down to make more sure, and looked all round the plant, and still found nothing. There was light enough to see a pebble, much more to catch the gleam and flash of the great diamond I knew so well. It was not there, and yet I knew that I had seen it fall beyond all room for doubt. "'It is gone, Elzevir, it is gone!' I cried out in anguish, but only heard a hush from him to bid me not to speak so loud. Then I fell on my knees again, and sifted the mould through my fingers to make sure the stone had not sunk in and been overlooked. But it was all to no purpose, and at last I stepped back to where Elzevir was, and begged him to light a piece of match in the shelter of the hollyhocks, and I would screen it with my hands, so that the light should fall upon the ground, and not be seen from the house, and so search round the flower. He did as I asked, not because he thought that I should find anything, but rather to humour me, and as he put the lighted match into my hands, said, speaking low, "'Let the stone be, lad, let it be, for either thou didst fail to mark the place right, or others have been here before thee. Tis ruled 
we should not touch the stone again. And so tis best. Let be, let be, let us get home. He put his hand upon my shoulder gently, and spoke with such an earnestness and pleading in his voice, that one would have thought it was a woman rather than a great rough giant. And yet I would not hear, and broke away, sheltering the match in my hollowed hands, and making back to the red flower. But this time, just as I stepped upon the mould, coming to the bed from the house-side, the light fell on the ground, and there I saw something that brought me up short. It was but a dint or impress on the soft brown loam, and yet, before my eyes were well upon it, I knew it for the print of a sharp heel, a sharp, deep heel, having just in front of it the outline of a little foot. There is a story every boy was given to read when I was young of Crusoe wrecked upon a desert isle, who, walking one day on the shore, was staggered by a single footprint in the sand, because he learnt thus that there were savages in that sad place where he thought he stood alone. Yet I believe even that footprint in the sand was never greater blow to him than was this impress in the garden mould to me. For I remembered well the little shoes of polished leather, with their silver buckles and high-tilted heels. He had been there before us. I found another footprint, and another leading towards the middle of the bed, and then I flung the match away, trampling the fire out in the soil. It was no use searching farther now, for I knew well there was no diamond here for us. I stepped back to the lawn, and caught Elzevir by the arm. "'Alderbrand has been here before us, and stole away the jewel,' I whispered sharp, and looking wildly round in the still night, saw the lattice of lamplight shining through the wooden blinds of the balcony window. "'Well, there's an end of it,' said he, "'and we are saved further question. "'Tis gone, so let us cry good riddance to it, and be off.' So he turned to go back, and there was one more chance for me to choose the better way and go with him. But still I could not give the jewel up, and must go farther on the other path which led to ruin for us both. For I had my eyes fixed on the light coming through the blinds of that window, and saw how thick and strong the boughs of the pear-tree were trained against the wall about the balcony. Elzevir, I said, swallowing the bitter disappointment which rose in my throat, "'I cannot go till I have seen what is doing in that room above.' I would climb to the balcony and look in through the chinks. Perhaps he is not there, perhaps he has left our diamond there, and we may get it back again. So I went straight to the house, not giving him time to raise a word to stop me, for there was something in me driving me on, and I was not to be stopped by any one from that purpose. There was no need to fear any seeing us, for all the windows except that one, were tight-shuttered, and though our footsteps on the soft lawn woke no sound, I knew that Elzevir was following me. It was no easy task to climb the pear-tree, for all that the boughs looked so strong, for they laid close against the wall and gave little hold for hand or foot. Twice, or more, an unripe pear was broken off and fell rustling down through the leaves to earth, and I paused and waited to hear if anyone was disturbed in the room above. But all was deathly still, and at last I got my hand upon the parapet, and so came safe to the balcony. I was panting from the hard climb, yet did not wait to get my breath, but made straight for the window to see what was going on inside. The outer shutters were still flung back, as they had been in the afternoon, and there was no difficulty in looking in, for I found an opening in the lattice-blind just level with my eyes, and could see all the room inside. It was well lit, as for a marriage-feast, 
and I think there were a score of candles or more burning in holders on the table or in sconces on the wall. At the table, on the farther side of it away from me, and facing the window, sat Alderbrand, just as he sat when he told us the stone was a sham. His face was turned towards the window, and as I looked full at him it seemed impossible but that he should know that I was there. In front of him on the table lay the diamond, our diamond, my diamond, for I knew it was a diamond now and not false. It was not alone, but had a dozen more cut gems lay beside it on the table, each a little apart from the other, yet there was no mistaking mine, which was thrice as big as any of the rest. And if it surpassed them in size, how much more did it excel in fierceness and sparkle! All the candles in the room were mirrored in it, and as the splendour flashed from every line and facet that I knew so well, it seemed to call to me, Am I not queen of all diamonds of the world? Am I not your diamond? Would you not take me to yourself again? Would you save me from this sorry trickster? I had my eyes fixed, but still knew that Elzevir was beside me. He would not let me risk him myself in any hazard alone without he stood by me himself to help me in case of need. And yet his faithfulness but galled me now, and I asked myself with a sneer, Am I never to stir hand or foot without this man to dog me? The merchant sat still for a minute, as though thinking, and then he took one of the diamonds that lay on the table, and then another, and set them close beside the great stone, pitting them, as it were, with it. Yet how could any match with that? For it outshone them all, as the sun outshines the stars in heaven. Then the old man took the stone and weighed it in the scales which stood on the table before him, balancing it carefully, and a dozen times, against some little weights of brass. And then he wrote with pen and ink in a sheepskin book, and afterwards on a sheet of paper, as though casting up numbers. What would I have not have given to see the figures that he wrote? For was he not casting up the value of the jewel, and summing up the profits he would make? After that, he took the stone between finger and thumb, holding it up before his eyes, and placing it now this way, now that, so that the light might best fall on it. I could have cursed him for the wandering love of that fair jewel that overspread his face, and cursed him ten times more for the smile upon his lips, because I guessed he laughed to think how he had duped two simple sailors that very afternoon. There was the diamond in his hands, our diamond, my diamond, in his hands, and I but two yards from my own, only a flimsy veil of wood and glass to keep me from the treasure he had basely stolen from us. Then I felt Elzevir's hand upon my shoulder. "'Let us be going,' he said. "'A minute more, and he may come to put these shutters to and find us here. Let us be going. Diamonds are not for simple folk like us. This is an evil stone, and brings curse with it. Let us be going, John.' but I shook off the kind hand roughly, forgetting how he had saved my life, and nursed me for many weary weeks, and stood by me through bad and worse. For just now the man at the table rose and took out a little iron box from a cupboard at the back of the room. I knew that he was going to lock my treasure into it, and that I should see it no more. But the great jewel lying lonely on the table flashed and sparkled in the light of twenty candles, and called to me, Am I not queen of all diamonds of the world? Am I not your diamond? Save me from the hands of this scurvy robber! 
Then I hurled myself forward with all my weight, full on the joining of the window-frames, and in a second crashed through the glass and through the wooden blind into the room behind. The noise of splintered wood and glass had not died away, before there was a sound as of bells ringing all over the house, and the wires I had seen in the afternoon dangled loose in front of my face. But I cared neither for bells nor wires, for there lay the great jewel flashing before me. The merchant had turned sharp round at the crash and darted for the diamond, crying, "'Thieves! Thieves! Thieves!' He was nearer to it than I, and as I dashed forward our hands met across the table with his underneath upon the stone. But I gripped him by the wrist, and though he struggled he was but a weak old man, and in a few seconds I had it twisted from his grasp. In a few seconds, but before they were past, the diamond was well in my hand, the door burst open, and in rushed six sturdy serving-men with staves and bludgeons. Elzevir had given a little groan when he saw me forth the window, but followed me into the room and was now at my side. "'Thieves! Thieves! Thieves!' screamed the merchant, falling back exhausted in his chair, and pointed to us. And then the knaves fell on us too quick for us to make for the window. Two set on me, and four on Elzevir. And one man, even a giant, cannot fight with four, above all when they carry staves. Never had I seen Master Block overborne or worsted by any odds, and fortune was kind to me, at least in this, that she let me not see the issue then, for a staff caught me so round a knock on the head as made the diamond drop out of my hand, and laid me swooning on the floor. End of chapter 16 Recording by Simon Evers.